Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Welcome in, of course, to another episode. It is great to have you joining me, even though I can't see you and you can't see me uh, somehow. This is an experience shared, and um, it's been a little longer than I had planned since the last episode, but that's mostly due to the fact that uh, I and my household, my family, we've all been sick, and it's not been the COVID, which is great, but um, my voice has certainly sounded like I could have it, and I thought the last thing anyone wanted during a global pandemic is to listen to a podcast episode where the person sounds like <laughs> they are they are really sick. So um, nobody needs that on top of all the other layers of anxiety. Uh, and so, um, so yes, I've waited until my voice has mostly come back to normal. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully, I sound like a regular human being again. So, um, in light of all of that, this is in fact the last episode in the series that we've been doing this year. Now, we're still going to have a couple more episodes before the end of the year, but this is the last episode of this of the series that's been exploring uh, divine intervention and maybe some of the the problems with classical notions of a god outside the system sometimes breaking in. And in particular, in the last uh, two or three episodes, we've been focusing in on the Jesus story and how if we are reshaping and reimagining the way that we might think about God as one who is in and through and present in all things, then how does that impact on how we understand something like Jesus? Uh, and so we've been wrestling with that. The last couple of episodes have been some interviews with some other scholars and theologians diving deep on the theology of Jesus with Thomas J. Ord and then with Trip Fuller, both uh, spectacular theologians in their own right. But what I want to do in this episode is kind of tie some of those thoughts together in light of how I'm coming to understand God at the moment, how that is shaping my view of Jesus um, in dialogue really with those last couple of episodes that we've that we've done. And uh, in my own language, I guess, uh, explain what it is I think is going on uh, in the Jesus story in relation to God and God's presence in that story, and also why this might matter for us? Why, why does this, does Jesus still matter, right? Is Jesus still worth paying attention to? Especially if our view of faith is now opening up and broadening and diversifying and becoming more generous, then do we still need to hang on to the Jesus story? Is there any benefit to that? Is there something going on there that we still need or might benefit us if we pay attention to it, right? So that's, that's really what we're going to unpack in this episode. So we might as well get there. This is episode 40 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so in the last couple of episodes, we've jumped into, it's been some theologically deep territory, if you've listened to those episodes, uh, trying to wrestle with the Jesus thing. And I think one of the reasons it can maybe feel like such complex territory for us is that the Christian tradition contains some pretty huge claims about Jesus historically, right? Claims that for many Christians, their entire faith rests upon. And, you know, things like Jesus is God, for example, which is a that's a big claim. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus is the savior of the world. You know, Jesus died for our sins and so on. These are, these are huge, big things to say and are often at the core of um, people's faith and therefore their whole reason for being within a particular faith tradition is because of those claims that they are believing, trying to live faithfully uh, in light of and so on. And so if we're going to try and re-examine any of that and figure out what we might think about it, you know, it can be tricky. It can be complicated territory to to navigate. And I think perhaps sometimes it's easier to, to do one of two things. It's either easier to just believe it without thinking too much about it or to just throw it away. 
uh, especially you know when, when questions come up, especially or we want to re-examine things, sometimes it just feels like hard work, and it's like, is there any point to this? Either I believe it simply and just just trust and just sort of put my hands over my ears, or I toss the whole thing out because maybe it's not worth it at all. And of course, as all the way through this podcast, my approach has been to kind of to find a third way between these two options because I wanted I do want to challenge many aspects of my own tradition. Um, especially where I see big problems within within certain streams of it, right? Um, but I also see that still, somehow, uh, sometimes it's a surprise to me, the possibility that faith and spirituality shaped by this Jesus story can be incredibly valuable, meaningful, transformative, um, personally, individually, and also communally. So I also think it's true that we often assume that the same things have always been believed about Jesus all the way through the Christian story and, and the Christian church and the tradition and so on. But that's not necessarily true either, even if there have been many common threads in that story. Um, you know, in the first few centuries after Jesus, including among his most early followers, there was lots of theorizing and speculating and discussion about just exactly who Jesus was, what it meant to follow Jesus, why Jesus was so important. The Gospels themselves and the New Testament texts um, portray slightly differing perspectives and views on this character, Jesus, who they were caught up in following. And that's very, very early on in the story. You can see people responding to Jesus during his life, trying to make sense of who he was uh, and what that might mean. You know, there were some uh, in the first couple of centuries after Jesus who believed that Jesus was just some kind of phantom-like image of God that wasn't real and embodied because they believed that bodies were evil and corrupt. And so Jesus couldn't possibly have had a physical body. There were others who believed that Jesus was just a good man, but then at some point the divine came and rested upon him, maybe at his baptism or something like that, and that united the human and the divine for this period of his ministry. There were some who believed that Jesus was some kind of hybrid mixture of God and human, some kind of demigod kind of figure. Uh, But over time, what became the, the orthodox position, right, which is to say the thing that the church said, okay, this is what we believe about Jesus, uh, was to say that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And I would, and they said this or articulated it in a way that said Jesus has a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. So that became Christian orthodoxy. And it became ratified at church councils and then entrenched within the Christian tradition. But it's also true that that language, which is still very much the way that, that orthodox Christianity talks about Jesus uh, today, and so it's true that, that even that idea of things having a nature um, is itself one that makes sense within the kind of 4th and 5th century in which it was discussed and written and, and talked about. It doesn't necessarily make as much sense to us now if we stop and think about it, right? So, so in, in the time when that language of Jesus having this divine nature and human nature was, um, was decided upon, they also believed that humans were things were what they were because they had that nature inside them. And so humans were humans because they had a human nature. God has a divine nature. Dogs have a dog nature. That's what makes dogs dogs. And that's what makes things what they are. And then uh, that allows, I suppose, some Christian theologians to then say that humans had a sinful nature. So somehow the nature of humanity had then been corrupted by sin Right, and then obviously that's something that Jesus can come and save us from. So we have this orthodox belief of the Christian tradition from 4th, 5th century onwards about Jesus having this divine and human nature. But now we also know that human beings aren't necessarily defined or made what they are because they have this 
nature, this mysterious kind of nature inside of them, as these ancient church theologians believed. We know now that there's something called DNA, that there's genetic coding, that human consciousness is, in fact, this complex intersection of things, right, of embodied and kind of mysteriously emergent properties, even if we still don't understand it. Or we do know that what makes a dog different from a human is not some kind of um, mysterious inner nature, but actually a whole lot of other things. And if we really pay attention to what we now know then, that does kind of muck up some of those beliefs or those ways at least of explaining Jesus a little bit. We can't, I don't think, just say, well, I can't just say that Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature as if that solves things. When we now understand that the whole concept of things having a nature isn't really a thing in the way that maybe the church used to believe. And we also, I think, now recognize that the universe works in much more complex ways than we ever understood in the past. So... God is not up in the heavens somewhere looking down and just and intervening here and there. And that's something we talked about a lot this year on the podcast. And so I mentioned, you know, the old song I, I kind of sung a lot when I was a younger man uh, that I mentioned to Trip in the last episode, uh, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, you know, talking about Jesus um, sort of coming from heaven to earth, came down. Uh, that's sometimes the language that's used. And that idea itself is built on an ancient kind of cosmology or belief about the world, the universe and God's relationship to the world. And that also doesn't exactly resemble what we now know of things. We know that God is not sort of above the clouds somewhere. And in fact, we've been discussing all the way through this year, the problematic way, the problematic um, nature of thinking about God as as sort of above or, or separate from the world and then occasionally coming into it. So then what do we do with all of this, right? Um And what I'm interested in trying to figure out and and wrestle with and probe and um, consider is given what we now know about the world and even our changing views on, or my changing views on God, is there any point to still being interested in Jesus? And if so, kind of what is that? And if we're interested in Jesus, is there anything genuinely and existentially kind of meaningful about that level of interest? You know, is there something authentically transformative? Is there, is God somehow present? to us in this story and therefore in this kind of faith. And so these are, these are big questions. And I'm aware that these questions can make people uncomfortable, especially if you've been immersed in Christianity. Uh, because even when people, you know, I, I see this a lot, when people go through various kind of faith crises, whether you call it deconstruction or you call it something else, it's often Jesus that people hold in place or are told to hold in place. So sometimes the advice given to people going through deconstruction is, sure, pull apart all your beliefs, but hold on to Jesus. Um you know, you sure you can question anything, but just but Jesus is your is your center. But what happens when it's Jesus at the center that's getting questioned, right? What's that, what happens when? What do we do then? And can we still find a meaningful way forward without feeling bad or getting shamed for having questions about the Jesus story itself? So what I want to do with the remaining time I have is try and lay out what I'm currently thinking about Jesus, why I think it matters, and what it's got to do with us and God. And so I'm going to draw on a couple of the ideas that have come up in the latest episodes and and then we'll see where that takes us. So as I've said already, given a nod to a couple of times here, one of the big ideas that's come through this year for me and through my podcast is that I think we need to move away from the kind of theism, kind of belief in God that sees God as out there somewhere and then who either chooses to intervene or not. But instead, we can actually think of a God who is in and through all things, a God who's affected by the world and a world that is in some way affected by God. But in this kind of God-world relationship, rather than the world being affected by a God outside of the system, the world is affected by a God who is already present in and through all things, right? So 
then this God doesn't have to break in and break all the rules in what we might have historically called supernatural ways. Instead, our only real way of experiencing and knowing God is through our real embodied lives, our material reality. Um, so instead of looking beyond to come some kind of spectacular breaking in, we're actually able to pay attention to the idea that all of the world is a kind of incarnation, right? All of the world is filled with God. So if that's the case, if all of the world is a kind of incarnation of God, if God is present fully in all things, then this brings us to Jesus because um, Jesus then isn't some massive interruption where God suddenly jumps into the story, you know? And that's, I guess, historically the way that I had tended to think about it. Here was the world. Yes, God interacted from time to time, but then in the Jesus story, God suddenly jumps into the story in a, in a, um, in a radical, world-altering kind of way. And I, and I do want to say that I think what goes on in the Jesus story has the capacity to reshape the world. But I don't think it's this massive discontinuity with the rest of the world around Jesus. Um, because God is already in the world, in all things. The divine is present uh, as the source of life within all things. So then if God is present in Jesus, that's not this sudden other thing totally distinct and different and mysterious. It's in some way a continuation of what God is already, the way God is already present to us. So then what can we say about Jesus that's meaningful then, right? And, and I suppose for me, what I'm, what I'm kind of coming to is that to be a Christian for, for me, and this, is, this does not have to be for you, but where I'm landing on this is that somehow Jesus shows us something unique about God. Another way to say it might be that God is present in a particular kind of way in the Jesus story that I find compelling and, and, and interesting and transformative. And, and this kind of presence of God in Jesus that I'm talking about here is not from the outside, like God jumping down, but is actually through Jesus' own participation in and faithfulness to God's way of being in the world. You know, so as, as Tripp said in the last episode, if you listen to that, it's not so much trying to define Jesus' kind of um, divine perfection, right, as a kind of sinlessness where Jesus never swore or got angry at his mom or whatever. But what makes Jesus interesting, what makes Jesus, in his own terms even, perfect, if you like, if you look at his Sermon on the Mount, is to love others and even to love our enemies and to give up our life, lives for one another. And he takes this idea all the way, right? This idea of self-giving love, refusing to participate in the ways of violence and the cycles of vengeance. Instead, in the Jesus story, we get this offering of, you want to know what God is like? Well, God looks like self-giving love that we see in Jesus. So then we can say, okay, if, if we want to know what God is like, we can kind of start with with the conversation about Jesus as a grounding to our conversation. And the reason I think perhaps that's important is because otherwise we're left with kind of a vague spirituality where, where God is kind of present everywhere and in all things, and that's really nice. But when it comes to, to specifying or to defining what does that actually look like, we can then kind of create God in, in, a, in an image to suit ourselves. We essentially create a version of God that doesn't confront us or challenge us or require us to, to look at the way that we live or to treat others with more compassion um, we just have a sort of a vague, gen- generic spirituality. And I, and I don't, you know, I totally get that. And I understand why people might land there because I think 
sometimes when you look around, you're like, I don't really, I know there's something going on, but I don't, I believe there's something more, but I don't know what that is. And I have no reason or no confidence to be able to lay claim to anything in particular. Then that kind of more generic spirituality can be really meaningful. But I think what, what Jesus can offer the conversation is like a grounding to that conversation in this particular kind of story where we see um, someone participating most fully with the divine uh, present within them in a way that shows us that God is self-giving, that God is loving, that God is for uh, those on the margins and those who are suffering under the weight of injustice. And, and that then becomes an opening to a conversation about God that I think becomes really um, helpful and also challenging to us. And this is not to say that God is not present then elsewhere, right? Including even other religions. Um, I'm not saying that other religions don't have anything to offer us about God. And I think there's much I know, like I know I could learn a lot from other faiths and people of other faiths. But what I am saying, I suppose, is that for me, there is something particularly compelling to me about Jesus that I think tells me something about God and about God's presence to us and therefore about the world and about meaning and about my own life, right? So I know we could say a lot more about Jesus than that. We could get into technical conversations around how Jesus, you know, what's going on in Jesus. But I'm, I'm kind of not so interested in that right now. I'm interested in a starting point, a kind of ground level that I can build from rather than having to work out all the details as if I can figure it all out and know all of that. Instead, I just want to start with this idea that, that I, I think, as far as I can tell, God is present in Jesus in a way that tells us something about what God is like, about what is most real, about the things that matter most. Um, and so maybe what I want to do with the, the rest of our time is to tell you why I think, or what it is that I think Jesus offers us in the conversation about what God is like and about fundamental reality. Uh, I guess this is essentially why, why my faith still matters to me, kind of kind of outline, right? Not to convince anyone else, but to offer why I am where I am right now. Uh, and hopefully that that's helpful to you. So the, so the, the first, I, I, want to sort of, I want to talk about three things. And, and the first of those is that in the Jesus story, I think we come to, we're offered presence over ideology, right? And, and when it comes to something like religion, right? Religious systems and religious traditions and religious beliefs, at least some of what we're often saying when we attach ourselves to a particular religion, like Christianity, is that the systems of belief help me to make sense of myself and the world in ways that I find that that, that resonate and can be helpful. Uh, that's at least some of what we're saying, right? But what can happen for us is that we take the system of beliefs, and actually this is not just religious, this can also be political or philosophical, uh, whatever they might be, we can take that system of beliefs and they become these kind of unmovable, static, fixed, fundamentalist kind of frameworks, right? We become sure of our own rightness. And in fact, our attachment to then our religious tradition is less about, hey, I'm finding God present here and, and that's in a help, way that's helpful to me and, and more about the fact that I'm right because I believe these things and everyone else must come to see things my way. And that happens, as I say, in religion, but it also happens in other aspects of our social and communal lives. And several things can happen when we do this, when we kind of fix to an ideology like this. I think there's a reason why we 
do it, right? It's comforting. It gives us a sense of certainty, helps us to make meaning of our lives, to interpret reality and to be able to know who's on our side and who's not, right? So it gives us a it gives us a sense of belonging along with that sense of comfort. Comfort, certainty, belonging, a, a, a kind of faction to belong to, if you like, where we can we know who's kind of on our team and who's not on our team. So when we go through the experiences of life, we, it gives us a framework to engage that makes us feel good, makes us feel right, makes us feel like we belong, and gives us our people. The problem with that kind of ideological framework, be it religious or, or political or something else, is that what we often start to do is refuse to listen and incorporate new data, right? So we've kind of got the ideology, we've got the framework, and then whenever anyone comes along with experiences that are that are different, that with with data, if you like, be it scientific, experiential, um, social, whatever that kind of data might be, if it doesn't fit the kind of ideology, then then we push it away. We refuse to listen and incorporate it because it's going to disrupt that sense of comfort, of certainty, and of belonging because it's challenging the ideology we've we've found ourselves locked within. So that's one thing that, that happens for us in that kind of ideological space. We can't listen. We can't change. And then we can also be hard on ourselves when we experience things personally that don't fit our ideology, right? So it's one thing to find others whose experiences don't fit and we can kind of shun them and push them away. But what happens when it's our own experiences that don't fit? Then we don't know what to do with ourselves. And so sometimes we have to push that down, smother it, um, kind of internalize that feeling of isolation or of I don't belong so that we we push against others, but we're also kind of pushing against ourselves internally and, and that becomes a dangerous kind of split or a very unhealthy kind of split to happen within us. Um, and one of the other things, obviously, that, that's related to that is, is, the, is these, we develop these kind of purity tests of our membership, right? So it's really clear lines between the people on our team and the people not on our team. And there are there are particular trigger points that tell you if you're on our team or not. And they become like purity tests, like things that say, are you one of us or not? Are you in this group that belongs to this ideology or not? So one of the things, in light of, because this is a very human um, way of being in the world, right? But one of the things I find really interesting about Jesus is that although he clearly deals with some of the things we believe in, I don't want to say here that what we believe isn't important because I think it is. Obviously, I'd do a whole podcast related to the kinds of things that we believe. But but for the Jesus, the, the primary way forward is actually about presence rather than about ideology, right? So what you don't find Jesus doing is saying, you must believe these 10 things in order to be on my side. He doesn't say, here's the fundamental truths. When someone comes to him and says, okay, what, what do I need to do? He doesn't say, well, here's the five things you need to believe. Uh, and if you believe those and can say them after me, then you're in. He tells a story or he says, I'm coming for dinner, right? And when he speaks of the kingdom of God, he speaks of it as coming kind of as, as being near you and coming through him and being in you and among you. Um, so there's this, there's this notion of presence to this way of being rather than simply an ideology to cling to. And actually what happens when he behaves and, and speaks like that is that he disrupts any system by which we define who's kind of in and out, right side, wrong side. 
Um, right, so he 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 walks into spaces where all of those rules are, are, are functioning, all of those factions, all of those kind of teams, if you like, that are split on their ideological differences, and he disrupts all of those kind of unspoken and spoken rules, and behaves in ways that just don't follow the ideological ideological divisions between different groups of people, and 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 that follows right through into his own self. Right, rather than raising up an army to fight for what he believes, he offers up himself. Right, and he's he's killed. He's executed by those who are totally blinded by the ideology, um, so blinded by it that they can't see that God is present to them in that moment. Right, but but the. But the symbolic nature of the Jesus story is that those who are blind to that and execute him are ultimately showing up to not um, to not have a handle on reality as it really is, and to what God is like. So the first this, the first idea is this presence over ideology, right? But the second that comes with it is this idea of grace over status. So if we're trying to think about you know how does if Jesus if if God is present in this Jesus story, in this intensified kind of way, right, that's, that, that we should pay attention to, then what is it that we're learning about God and therefore about uh, this insight into reality itself? And, and there's this uh, invitation to consider grace over status, right? And, and I kind of, when I was a younger uh, man, grace was often talked about as this idea of undeserved favor, you know? So, God has kind of saved you even though you don't deserve it. And that's like that's like nice and also not nice, right? It's like God has saved you, hooray, even though you don't deserve it because you're very undeserving. And if you, you know, all you have to do is sing a few Christian worship, contemporary worship songs or old hymns and you'll find out how undeserving you are, right? Um, I think it's meant to be encouraging, but but the implicit kind of theology is you're pretty terrible, Um how undeserving you are. And, and I think that's a, a very shallow and, and at times, frankly, unhelpful way of thinking about grace. And what I, what I want to suggest is that I think in the Jesus story, what's revealed to us is a much richer and more important way of understanding what's captured in this word. And, and it's connected to this idea that beyond anything we can do or can't do, beyond anything we possess or don't possess, or beyond anything we are or aren't or able to accomplish or not, every human being is given this dignity and worth and value, right, by the divine. And so there's the divine bestowal of dignity and worth upon each human creature. Um, and now, you know, that might sound self-evident. Everyone's like, of course, everyone, human rights and, and so on. Um, but actually, that's not always been a given throughout history. And human beings have long thought of each other in relation to various kind of statuses that tell us what a person is worth or why they matter, and we continue to do that to each other. You know, in the ancient Greco-Roman system of Jesus' time and of the New Testament church, there were these status systems, you know, with the philosophers and the, and the nobles and the powerful people at top, and then you work your way down to those who work with their hands, and then you work your way down to women and to children and slaves and so on. This very, very strong status system. Um, in some countries, you see a kind of caste system. Um, in some of our histories, we've had kind of the nobility and the royalty versus the commoner or the peasant. Right? We've had gender status, where some one gender in particular, uh, you know, in the patriarchy, male gender being placed over and above um, other gender identities. We've got um, slavery that's often functioned on the base of race, and then we've got racism itself in the way that's been entrenched. Or in the kind of 
uh, growing Western uh, world, there were the civilized and the uncivilized, or the colonizers and those being colonized, the pagans and the and the and the righteous. You know, all of these ways that human beings separate out into these status systems that tell us one person is worth more than another. And what flows out of that are these very unjust and oppressive ways of being in community with each other. And this happens in religious systems too, of course, and it's, and it's one of the things that Jesus is so concerned with in his push against certain ways of framing up religion in his time and place, right? So I've talked about the fact that he's not about ideology, but he is about upturning the kind of status systems that flow out of those ideological systems. And, um, you know, one of the real challenges we have when we're trying to deal with or confront these status systems, is that they become greater than the sum of their parts, right? They become a thing in and of themselves. And when you change the components, you still can't seem to change the system itself because it's become a thing. It's become its own kind of beast. Right, so how does, if that's kind of the way status is functioning, how does then grace come into this conversation? Well, it's the claim, and in fact, it goes right back to the origins of Israel's creation mythologies, right? That all of humanity is created to image God, rather than just royalty or just nobility or just the emperor, just the king. And when we come into the story of Jesus, it's flooded with this idea that all human beings have inherent dignity and worth. And so Jesus spends most of his time with all of those who aren't considered to be of high value. He uplifts the dignity of marginalized people, unclean people, sick, women, children, uh, sinners, those outside the right team and those who are suffering. And so rather than grace being this kind of passive statement of I'm forgiven, um, even though I don't deserve it, it's actually a statement about bestowing value upon marginalized people. Um, it becomes, in that sense then, a personal and a communal revolutionizing kind of force in the world. Jesus pushes us forward into this confrontation with our own personal judgments about other people and into this confrontation then with the social systems we've set up that actually need to be challenged. So although there's this wonderful kind of presence that isn't about ideological division, there's also this disruption to the social status and caste systems that we develop that overthrow, if we, if we allow them to, overthrow our tendency towards injustice and oppression of some over another. And so then connected to that, the third thing I want to say that I think we see in the Jesus story that tells us something about what God is like is this idea of self-giving love over coercive power, right? So we've talked a little bit this year in the podcast about the idea of God as uncontrolling love. And yet so much of our world, including our religious systems, are about power, about getting power and keeping power. Uh, and, and again, 2020 has been a year where power dynamics have come to the surface um, in very, very um, unhealthy and destructive ways. And this fascination we have with gaining and keeping power is at the center of the violence we do to each other. And you can see people are responding to Jesus in the first century as another power player, right? And someone else who's going to be gathering power to them. That's why Romans are afraid. That's why religious leaders are afraid and fearful because they see someone coming to compete with their claims to power. But instead of some kind of political or religious claim to power, Jesus actually shows us that, that what's real, what's most real, what's most divine 
is actually a self-giving and uncontrolling kind of love and way of being in the world. And I think the claim ultimately of the Jesus story is that self-giving love is ultimately the most powerful thing there is in real terms. Because love is at the core of God and then therefore love is at the center of all things. So the New Testament is able in light of Jesus to say things like God is love. Now, that might sound lovely and fluffy, um, but it was revolutionary in its time. No one was talking in that kind of language so purely in that kind of way. You know, elsewhere in the New Testament, it says there is no fear in love because fear has to do with punishment. Instead, love pushes out fear, right? So if that's true, then we can no longer hold to these punitive and punishing ways of conceiving of God, and nor can we hold to punitive and punishing ways of seeing uh, another. This reshapes our view of God, of the world, of humanness, of each other, and of ourselves. Not only do we are we challenged to not punish others, we're invited then and liberated from the self-punishment that we dish out so generously to ourselves. This is a reshaping of the way we see the world, and one in which, if we allow it to, helps us to see every person we encounter as another opportunity to bump into God, especially when we encounter those in need who are suffering under the weight of the kind of injustice we've spoken about. So, where does that leave us? Well, for me, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think Jesus is still interesting. I think even if we are going to dispense with some of those notions of a God out there somewhere who then comes rushing down into the little baby, um, we can still hold this idea that there's something going on in the Jesus story in which God is present to us uniquely and in a compelling and interesting and potentially transformative kind of way. That all the world is in God, and God is in all the world. And Jesus reminds us of this and shows us what it looks like when we tune in and pay attention and allow that kind of divine presence to transform us in the way that we treat one another. So that's where we're going to land with this whole series on divine intervention and God and God in the world how it all fits together. That's where I'm at right now. Of course, this will continue to change for me as I continue to reflect and think about my faith. But I hope that in some way has been helpful to you. In the next episode of In The Shift, I'm bringing to you a, a wonderful conversation I had with Paul Young, author of The Shack, and Bradley Jersick, author of a book called A More Christ-like God, uh, about a little novella that they wrote together. Uh, and so that's going to be the next episode. It's a wonderful conversation, and uh, I look forward to bringing that to you. Stay safe and your families in this crazy kind of time we live. I'll see you next time.